Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. I honestly thought I was losing my mind and I've never had any greater fear. And you speak of fear at war. The fear that I had of losing my mind exceeds any fear I've ever had in my life that I was going insane. Welcome to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Hello, this is Bob Bach. Welcome to another conversation in our series of segments in the Stigma-Free Vet Zone. Our guest today is Mike Orban, joining us from his home in West Bend, Wisconsin. Mike is a former soldier who served with the Army in Vietnam in 1971. I hope you had an opportunity to hear part one of our conversation with Mike. He described his life before and during his Vietnam experience and touched on many heartfelt subjects, uh, really a profound conversation, I must say. And Mike, today what we'd like to do is pick up the conversation from there. And I'm so happy that you've agreed to join us again. Thanks for coming on board. Oh, happy to do it. Thanks, Bob. Mike, the last time we visited, we ended really a very powerful note, which if I may summarize, you were describing to us what life was like initially upon your return to the U.S. and to your hometown of Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, a suburb of Milwaukee, and the isolation and the rage that you began to feel and the steps unhealthy by your own admittance that you began to use to try to cover the pain of that and, and the pain of what had then become a failed marriage. It, it sounds like this was a low point in your life, was it? It was low, but not the lowest. This would get much worse, Bob. This was, again, I don't know why any of this is happening. I don't know why I'm having the nightmares, the hypervigilance at home, why I'm you know, having the panic attacks. All of these things were really haunting me. And I, I, again, compared to the fact that I thought when I came home from war, I'd be in life as usual. It would be just as it had been. The war was over. And yet all of the things that I had going for survival at war had come home with me and they were not shutting off. I had things like my, my language, being raised Catholic, we never said hell in the house. My language when I came home from war was so offensive, so grotesque, that it, it took me a focused effort just to clean that up. Nothing made me laugh. Nothing made me smile. There was no joy inside me. There was no beauty inside me. Everything was dark. There was no emotional intimacy. That was all, all gone. 
my belief in God was gone. I never went to church again for at least certainly not to the Catholic church. So now I'm a person again in retrospect, but I don't know this at the time. I don't have a built-in psychiatrist telling me this is why this happened and this is what you should do. I'm out there all alone having this stuff that I don't even know who I am again. And the only thing that would help me to sleep or take away the anxiety was drinking. I don't know if you can answer this question, but let me ask it just the same. And that is, if if someone was to walk by you on the street, someone you knew, for instance, would they say, geez, look at Orban. God, that guy looks dead inside. Or would they say, hey, there's Orban. I haven't seen him in five years or two years and not really notice these very things that you've described in such detail that you were living with. I know that nobody would ever know or even anticipate what was going on inside of me. There's nobody that could have looked at me and said, wow, this guy's really, really suffering or really having trouble. I was very, very good at covering up. I was very good at the facade of hiding it. And that became something I I would do for decades, covering up. So I don't know if they would have noticed it. And the other side of that is, Bob, I didn't even know how dark I was inside, nor could I describe it. I mean, it it was bad, but I couldn't couldn't tell you how I felt because I didn't understand it myself. So I think I, I was very good at the facade. You mentioned in the first part of our conversation about visiting what was then the Washington Park Zoo, just a couple of miles east of where you grew up. And for that matter, enjoying looking at pictures in National Geographic magazine of animals and Africa and what have you. Uh, And I kind of chuckled because, my gosh, years later, those two things kind of come together, the animals and, and the geography of Africa, and they play what sounds like a kind of pivotal role in your life. Could you describe that to us? Absolutely. As we get up to that point, you know, when we come home from war, we've got the GI Bill and it had been my dream. When I was at war, there were two things that, that, that played on my mind that really kept me going to think about in a positive way that got you through, as you had asked earlier about the fear and the, you know the stress of war. I could go back and think to myself, man, when I get home, I've got college paid for. And I was thinking at Madison, University of Wisconsin, actually, I was thinking University of Michigan because it was my dream to go there. So I've got the GI Bill for college. That was a big, big incentive at war to find some sort of reason to live or or some enjoyment that took my mind away from the stress. So now I'm at home and I don't know who I am and all of these things are going bad and I'm depressed. And it got to be so bad that after about five years, I left to take advantage of Madison. You know, I actually went to the University of Michigan and applied there and was accepted until they found out I was from Wisconsin and told me that I would have to go to school in Wisconsin because the GI Bill was something offered by the state, not by the federal government. So I had transferred to Madison and went to school there and immediately was just as unsuccessful there as I was when I came home from war with my family. I couldn't focus on studies. I couldn't concentrate. I looked at everybody else. They were all happy. They knew what they wanted to be. I felt like I was in a foreign land. I was just depressed, unhappy, couldn't do anything. And that was very, very painful for me to watch and to feel, to watch this college education drift away. And I knew it was drifting away. And again, I'm still having the nightmares. This young father and his son who we had killed in Vietnam, I I failed to mention, we never told anybody about that. And as far as I know, nobody ever came to pick him up. 
those people up. So it haunted me for years. How do you just, what kind of people shoot people in a jungle and just leave them there and, and don't go and tell their families what happened to them? At least my understanding was that as far as I knew, nobody had gone and, and told them their families or tried to find their families or, or carried the bodies out to a, some point where they could be recovered. And I was just so disgusted by that. But I was so wrapped up in human beings, the hatred of human beings. And, but I wasn't making the connection that if I hated the human race, I'm part of the human race. So it was coming full circle that the reason I wasn't quite aware of it yet was I was very angry with myself for, for what we did. I hated myself for the guilt and the shame and of what we did. But also, I was really torn by a friend of mine who I went to high school with. We did a lot of work together. We were in Vietnam at the same time, and he had committed suicide in 1980. And so, you know, I had all of these things going on. My younger brother broke his neck graduating from high school. On the night he graduated from high school, broke his neck, and he would go on to commit suicide as well. And, you know, again, these were things you, ancillary things that you had to, to kind of deal with. But I was walking around the Capitol one day in Madison, just completely depressed, just kind of slogging along. I had no goals, no idea where I was going, what I was doing. I was just drifting, collecting the GI Bill. And I, there was a huge poster on one of the the plate glass windows of the continent of Africa, big green continent of Africa. And it said, Peace Corps, toughest job you'll ever love. And I looked at that and I, it, my whole body came alive. My mind came alive. I went in and signed up for the Peace Corps. I did not pick any other place. They had a whole catalog of places you could go to around the world. And I went right to the jungle and I went right to Africa. And I never even looked at another country. And I never even looked at the more arid parts of Africa. And I signed up for the Peace Corps and went home, told my family. And I tell you, Bob, this made me look so good to my family. Here's this guy, he's a soldier. Now he's going to Africa to build schools, you know. And this really, really gave my mother a lot of pride. And yet nobody knew that I was going because I just had to get out of this country. I just didn't fit. I didn't belong. I didn't know who I was. I, I had uh, no ambition, no goals, no nothing. So I, I think it was only something at this level of excitement, this level of activity that could have lit any kind of fire inside me to, to have some kind of joy. So I ended up going to the country of Gabon to build schools. This poster was it sounds to me like it was an epiphany for you. <laughs> I suppose I, I've learned to, to look for significant moments. Yeah. I mean, if it had been a, a poster of South America, believe it or not, I probably would not have been that interested. But as a child, the only interest I had in National Geographic was Africa. I would look at the photographs of the Maasai warriors or the roving herds of animals on the Serengeti Plain, you know, the million herd of wildebeest and that sort of thing in the the lions and the giraffes and all of that. So Africa, it was a very, very significant moment. But still, it sounds as if it was somewhere for you to hide. Is oh, it was <laughs> not somewhere. It was hiding. It was okay. everything I needed to hide. It was ideal. And at the same time, a beautiful cover up because it made me look like this wonderful, wonderful man who was going off to build schools in Africa. Sure. What was that experience like, arriving there and, and becoming acclimated? And can you recall, I mean, we're looking back here almost 50 years. Is it still vivid in your memory? Oh, absolutely. Africa saved my life. There's no, no question in my mind. Not that Africa saved my life, but what I learned in Africa saved my life. Just And I lived in a very, very remote village to start out. Mud house, grass roofs, no, no plumbing, no electricity, all that sort of thing. The bridges were washed out in the rainy season, so you were trapped there for three months. But I didn't mind. I was able to meet the pygmies in their 
natural habitat. And I went out there one day to be introduced to them with one of the government representatives who was monitoring the health of the, of the pygmies because they live very remotely. They themselves don't like the human race because they've been tormented by people for so many thousands of years. But I, I was introduced to them and there really are these tiny little people, a man and his wife, and they had a couple of small children just in loincloths. And the man, you know, I, I thought I was going to meet these people who just had these real stern, straight looks on their faces. But when they approached in the jungle, they had these big welcoming smiles. And that just went right to my soul to see these people smiling, hear these people that I thought were so unhappy, so miserable, so dejected and so put down, had, had just the most welcoming smiles in the world. And here I am coming from the, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, had every access to all the pleasures and joys of life. And, and I'm the one who's standing there looking like a complete, uh, you know, self-absorbed person. But they went on to tell me about their life and, and what the jungle meant and, and that the jungle gave them food, it gave them water, it gave them medicine, it gave them shelter, it gave them everything they needed was provided by the jungle. And their only responsibility to this jungle, they referred to it as their God. The God, jungle was their God. Their only responsibility was to take care of the jungle. Mm. And I'm standing there looking at these people thinking, this is the most plausible religion I've ever heard of. I mean, and, and I bought into it. All of a sudden, I realized, I was starting to realize, and, and it didn't take effect right away, but it was being stored away, that I belong to something much more beautiful and majestic and bigger than not only myself, but much bigger than the human race. And to see the animals of Africa, to see a giraffe running, running across an endless plain from horizon to horizon, to see the water buffalo, to see all of the animals, to see two male lions. When you get near a lion in the wild, it's an impressive, impressive thing to see when he looks right at you. And you better, you better be prepared to uh, keep your distance and be safe. But I, I saw male lions come together and fight, but you could see them stalking and to see elephants, a herd of elephants and elephants are just absolutely beautiful animals. Very, very intelligent. It, it just, it, it takes you to this place that is so majestic. You forget about your own internal struggles and you become part of something much, much bigger than yourself. And, and that's what I needed because a lot of the things that I had when I came home, I was just so internalized. It was about me. It was about Mike Orban. It was about my anger. It was about my shame, my nightmares, my panic, all about me. And I became really ashamed of myself for how internalized I had become. So these people, and then of course, the people in the village where I lived were also very, very good at taking me out and showing me the jungle and teaching me the ways of their cultures and everything else. And it, it was just so majestic and so beautiful and so healing that in that entire time that I was in Africa, I never had one nightmare, never had any panic attacks, I never had any, any difficulties with the issues of war. This sounds like a kind of classic description of, and I don't mean this in a religious sense, this sounds like a description of a spiritual awakening. I would say that's absolutely true, Bob. And, and the reason it's a spiritual awakening, because the damage that was done to me was not physical. I mean, I had malaria when I was in Vietnam, and I would have it again at three times in Africa. And I would have dengue fever and all of these. Those were physical things that you get over with medication and all that. And I have, you know, jungle rot on my ankles and my forearms. But that goes away. The spiritual damage, yes, it was a spiritual awakening, which was really important because the damage to my, me at war was, was in my soul. It was in my spirit. And I'm not talking about soul wound. I'm just talking my spirit just took an enormous, enormous hit. So yeah, it was certainly a, the beginnings of a spiritual awakening. Yes. 
How long were you there, Mike? Well, I stayed in the Peace Corps. It was a two-year hitch, but I extended because I loved it so much. And then I didn't want to go home. In fact, I was terrified to go home, Bob, because I was I knew that all those effects of war were waiting for me. I knew that anger was there. I knew if I went home, or at least I was afraid of it, that if I went home, all of those things would be waiting for me. The isolation, everything that I left to escape would still be there. So I was fortunate enough to meet a man who was hiring for another job in northern Cameroon with USAID, U.S. Agency for International Development. So I took that job, which was for two years. And then following that, I took another job with an engineering company in East Africa in Burundi for, uh, that was another two years or four years. So I ended up, it was an eight year over time, the majority of the next eight years. Why did you come home? I would still be there. <laughs> I was working in Burundi, East Africa, and Burundi, Burundi, Rwanda, and, and Uganda are three small little countries that are surrounded by Tanzania and the Congo and I think Somalia or something like that. Two of the cultures there, the Hutus and the Tutsis, have been battling each other life and death for millennium, I guess. And we were out in the jungle or out in the interior of the country and I came across a French mission and two French missionary nuns were there. It was a real old dusty mission and they were in their habits and the habits, of course, were all dirty and dusty. And one of them was very old and she looked at us and she said, you know, and she's speaking in French and she, she said to us, about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the Hutus and the Tutsis went to war against each other. And she said they slaughtered each other with the rakes and spears and rocks. And she said over 125,000 of them were killed. And she looked me right in the eyes and she said, I can feel it's about to happen again. And so I went back to Bujumbura, the capital of Burundi. And that's it. I was not going to get stuck. If you think a war in, in a modern, supposedly sophisticated army with you know, all of these rules and regulations for courtesy and kindness and Geneva Conventions. An African war is ruthless. I mean, ruthless. Just ask EDMN. I was not going to get caught in a war, so I left. And what people here know as the war in Rwanda or Hotel Rwanda was that war that came up just after I left. Otherwise, I would still be in Africa. So you return home after yeah. what had become a life-changing experience, as, yeah. as you mentioned. Sure. Did good things keep happening upon your return to the U.S.? No, I was immediately went right back into the nightmares, the, the guilt, the shame. Everything that I had had before Africa was back. The guilt, the shame, no belief in a God, not really knowing who I was, where, what, what was I going to do now? What was I going to do for a living? I didn't have any joy, didn't have any happiness everything was gone and of course started drinking again and now I started to work just to really to get by you know just to have sustenance you know to buy food and to buy booze and that sort of thing keep gas in the truck and but but never with a goal of you know having a home or doing things going anywhere traveling the world there was just absolutely no goal in life it was just very 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 depressing and it was getting worse after I came home and to tell you the truth, if it hadn't been for my brother Tom and his family and my sister Peg and her family, I would have been dead a long time ago. I would have, uh, I would have either been homeless or dead because I was that depressed and just, you know, I'm trying not to use swear words, but I, I just didn't care about anything. I, had to get, I just didn't care about anything. Myself, goals, nothing, as long as I just had that little bit to keep going. And it would come to get very, very depressing to the point that I honestly thought I was losing my mind. And I've never had any greater fear. And you speak of fear at war. 
the fear that I had of losing my mind exceeds any fear I've ever had in my life, that I was going insane. And I was going insane to the point of if I'm going to go insane, now the whole thought of suicide started coming in. The only way out of this is suicide. And I wasn't afraid of suicide. If suicide was more like my good friend that would if I wanted out of that pain, there, there it was. There was my out. There was the ace in the hole, and that was suicide. And of course, my brother had committed suicide, and I had seen what that had done to not only my mom, but my brothers and sisters. So I tried to avoid that for a while. Needless to say, it's a disturbing image, almost beyond words, that suicide would become a friend. Yeah. What was it that your sister and brother did, and what was its significance for you? I lived with them. When I was down in Florida, I stayed with my brother Tom and his family. So I had a place to live. I had responsibilities. I worked for my brother Tom. When I was with my sister Peg, I, I had a small business, a construction business. So my brother-in-law worked for me. So I was there. I had some family. And of course, I didn't drink that much when I was with them. So it was just that atmosphere of them giving me the support. And again, I'm not thinking about all of this stuff consciously at the time, but they loved me enough to take care of me. And, and I was grateful for that. So I had responsibilities not to be completely ungrateful for staying in their house. But it did get to the point eventually that I, that I did move on. And this was after several years and had my own place. And I was just, again, severely depressed. And I was standing in my living room. And I couldn't get rid of these visions, the nightmares of the people we had killed and, you know, the people whose bodies we just left in the jungle and walked away. I, I still, I, even to this day, don't get over that. And I had this vision. I wasn't drinking, wasn't taking drugs. I, t I had this vision of suicide came up to me. It was almost like an apparition that said, just do it. Just, that's it. You've had enough. Your mind's never going to get better. I was never afraid. And it wasn't because I was crying. Oh, I can't take this anymore. It's so severe. You know, you know poor me. I'm going to commit suicide. It was more like my mind's never getting over it. This has been almost you know, 25, over 25 years, I'll never recover from this. So just commit suicide. And that apparition was very, very strong. And the, the message really was either kill yourself or go get help. But this, it, this in-between stuff wasn't working. Now, I didn't mention, but earlier when I first came home from Vietnam, I had seen two psychiatrists with my own money. One, I paid $125 an hour and saw them for two years, never asked me about the war. They knew I was a war veteran, but put all the focus on talking about my parents. I had always assumed it was because, or came to assume or learn that they didn't know how to ask me about the war. They didn't know how to talk to me about the war. So they never engaged the conversation. And, and one of these psychiatrists was very well known. So I had been through the psychiatry thing. I had been through the antidepressants, the, the Prozac, and didn't like that, wasn't getting along with the, with the drugs. So I'd given up all that hope. So it wasn't like I had this, this sense of suicide without having tried anything. But something told me to try it again and, and to try one more psychologist, which I did. And again, she never asked me about the war. And again, focused on the destruction of, of my family, which uh, my, my parents' family, my brothers and sisters, which had become very, very severe. My brother had already committed suicide by now and a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol use in our, in our family. So I was speaking with a psychologist and I finally got to the point where I was frustrated. I just looked at her and I said, do you think this could have anything to do with the war? <laughs> and she sat up straight. I'll never forget this. She looked at me, stared at me with, with, like I had just been an apparition for her, picked up the telephone and called the VA hospital. And that was the first time when she hung up the phone that I ever heard the term PTSD. She said, they've got a PTSD program 
over at the VA hospital, and they think you should come over there. I was over there one day and met another Vietnam veteran who was smoking out in the smoke shack, which was another habit I had, that chain smoking. And he had just come back from, from an inpatient treatment center at Toma. And I was talking to him. He was a really, really nice guy. And he said, Mike, you got to go up there. And he said, I can get you in there. I'll talk to the people here and I'll get you in there because you need to get there now. So he did talk to the people in psychiatry at the VA in Milwaukee. And they called the VA hospital in Toma. And he spoke with a woman named Deb Pergandy, who was the director of the inpatient treatment center there. And she said, send him right up. And that saved my life. Going to going to the VA hospital in Toma. Toma is a small town, about 180 miles northwest of Milwaukee. Excuse me, I laughed earlier. That's okay. <laughs> Not because what you were saying was funny, but because it it just so is. It is so unbelievable that speaking to professionals in that era, in that was in the 19 early 90s or so, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, it would have that been there yeah. was no. They couldn't seem to draw a line between the two dots. Person sitting in front of me as a combat veteran and having great struggles. Let's focus on family dysfunction. I mean, yeah. it just well, uh, it yeah. seems can, almost you, unbelievable. You, you can laugh at it. I mean, we, we've talked about this before and have talked with a lot of veterans. One of the things we do is military humor. We, we laugh at things that are absolutely, everybody else would cry over. But laughter really became part of the, the coping mechanism was to laugh at the tragedies and make fun of some of these things because if you didn't laugh, you'd fall apart crying. So that was an important thing. But I do laugh years later telling people that when I was speaking with these psychiatrists that if you didn't hate your parents when you went in, you hated them when you came out because that's what they focus all the therapy on was trying to figure out why, you you know, what was wrong with you. And it must have been your father's fault or your mother's fault or something like that. So that was a struggle with that. But I just feel like they didn't know how to engage me in the topic. I mean, how do I ask them about that sort of thing? And, and so rather than ask me about it, they just avoided it altogether. So what impact did your stay in Toma have on you? The most important aspects of going to Toma, and, and they weren't immediate. I was only there 15 minutes and they put me on heavy duty, mirtazapine, olanzapine, some drugs without any more than, a, and I don't exaggerate, a 15 minute introduction. They immediately put me on these antidepressants and within a week, I'm not taking these. I can't. I was getting catatonic. I was shuffling my feet walking down the hallway and I had been through this stuff enough that, okay, I'm not doing this. If you want to die, I'll die, but I'm not going, I'm not going this route. So I gave up on those and it got to be being in a group this was impatient for three months, 90 days, with other veterans who were having the same reactions that I was. They were all Vietnam vets. Most of them were Vietnam vets, and they were all combat veterans or had some other, you know, some of them had just had really bad experiences in, in basic training where by mistake had seen people killed or, or whatever. So, but, but I was with other people, and one of the things that shocked me right at, at the outset was I have been with people all of my time since I came home from Vietnam who don't understand me. And I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only one experiencing all of these things, this rage, this anger, this isolation, this depression, the nightmares. And I was afraid to tell anybody. All of a sudden, I'm sitting in a group with 30 other guys that were laughing at me for this because they all had the same thing. And we're talking about this. And one by one, we would take a turn at telling one of the more traumatic stories that we had of war. And guys were, were, were on the floor in their hands and he's crying over things that it's almost going to make me cry retelling it, Bob. 
uh, crying at the pain that they had in, in being in war and things that they had seen that they had never spoken about. So it was, it was a matter of being number one with people that had very, very similar experiences that allowed me to say, this is normal. But then after having different discussions with people, you find out that unless you were a psychopath, there's no way you're going to war and not come home with these kind of reactions. And for anybody to say that their mental illnesses themselves, that's a very, very horrible thing to do. And, and I still hold the mental health profession very highly responsible for the way that they have handled, the way they handled us as veterans coming home from war. But that's a whole nother topic. So being with these other guys, I understood that these were very, very normal. But more importantly than that, I was given a, a sheet of paper. And I'll never forget the day I was given this. I was only there a day or two. And it was titled Common Responses to Trauma and Coping Therapies. And it was given to us in one of the classes. But it was originated by Dr. Patty Levin, who was a trauma specialist in Boston. And it had emotional reactions. And there were like 22 of them. And I, I read down this list of common responses to trauma, and I could identify with every one of them on the list. And these were the things that were haunting me for 30 years. This was in 2000 that I went there, just before 9-11. So this is about 30 years after I've been home for more. And I'm looking at these things, all these things that I couldn't identify in my head that were driving me crazy, driving me insane, making me drink, that I couldn't sleep, the nightmares, all these things. I could go down this list, and I'll share a couple of them with you now. Shock and disbelief, fear and anxiety, grief, disorientation, denial, hyper alertness and hypervigilance, concern with overburdening others, loss of intimacy and interest in sex, diminished interest in everyday activity. Anyway, I, I'm looking at this list, Bob, and I'm furious, absolutely furious. And I'm not furious that I have them or I could identify them. I'm furious that they didn't give me this list the day that I left the military and said, watch out for these. Because now that I saw these, I could identify what they were, and they were all right on the head, suicidal thoughts, anger toward religion or belief systems, revenge, all of these things. But now that I could identify them, I could go back and have a plan to start resolving them, either accept them as for being actual facts of life that you have to absorb as part of this experience, and the others, what, which ones could I resolve, and understanding them and resolving them and uh, accepting some of them was the most important thing I've ever done in my life. You are the author of a book, Sold Out, that's S-O-U-L-E-D, Sold Out, Consequences of the Experiences of War. You uh, have started the Orban Foundation for Veterans. You are a founder of the uh, Warrior Partnership, which is a program at the Medical College of Wisconsin located in Milwaukee that helps to um, introduce would-be doctors, doctors in training, to veterans so they can hear their stories and become even more effective when they make their rounds at the uh, local veterans hospital here. And there is a long list of other things you have done, but I mentioned those three to set up this question, and that is, were these efforts at outreach that you are participating in, not just diligently, but so generously of giving of your time, et cetera, do they hearken back to that list you received at, at Toma in many ways? This, yeah, <laughs> you're a wise man, Bob. This list is something, I, I don't want to call it my Bible, because I think the Bible is a very, very, an, an excellent book, and it has a lot of great learning experiences in it. But this one, for, for my experiences, absolutely. I, I give this to everyone that I meet who is interested in the information there. I, I give them to families 
because it was so important once I could see these and, and the ability for me to go on now as passion to help other people is because I once I saw this, there's a big distinction between a mental illness and an educational responsibility or, or opportunity. What I needed to know when I came home was not about the mental illness and I didn't need to have the mirtazapine and the olanzapine and the Paxil and all the other drugs that were really just anesthetizing me through life. I needed to understand what these reactions were, first what they were, then understand them, then resolve them. This is educational. And I was so furious if I were to waste my time at the mental health profession for number one, for this horrible name called PTSD, for understanding that it's stigmatizing, for not removing it and getting the focus back on education. But I would say that this this list has become something that is extremely important to me. But once I was able to resolve the issues, then it's become my passion to say to help, not based on the fact that something's wrong, but based on the fact that, okay, I see the educational value. This is what the majority of veterans that I know and the majority of veterans families need to have is this ability to understand what the reactions are, but more importantly, how to resolve them. Is hope and joy again a part of your life, Mike? Well, you know, along the way, I, I learned to believe this or not, I had laughed. Somebody gave me a book on Mark Twain. And I would, was, I remember very distinctly laughing again at some of his stories because he laughed at human beings. He laughed at himself. He laughed at how, what fools we are, what foolish things we are, how important we think we are. So I was able to learn that. But the things that I would say that I've learned that are the most important would be forgiveness. And that's self-forgiveness. I mean, I, how do you forgive yourself for killing people in Vietnam, leaving their bodies in the jungle and, and going to back to the other side of the world? Where do you get forgiveness for that? So I had to learn to forgive myself for some of the things we did at war. I had to learn the opposite of this really, really dark sensation that I had. And I realized a lot of people refer to it as dark, but this mental, spiritual emptiness. The opposite of that is is love. And to find love is a hopeful thing. But I'm not talking about the love of, you know, I love my girlfriend or I love my dog or I love this. It, it's a different, it's a love and a, a, that is hard to describe, but it comes from being connected to something bigger than myself. So I have found that forgiveness, love, all very important. But also when I was in Africa, I was able to visit Albert Dr. Albert Schweitzer's hospital and of course, he won the, not the Pulitzer Prize, but he won the oh, Nobel Peace Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize right. for his work on uh, reverence for life. But he also spoke of the will to live. And when I heard that and listened to him describe it, it was the very thing that was the most important to everybody that I've ever met in my life. And that's for the most part, their will to live. So when you're in combat, you know, there was no real real belief in any objective in the war, any mission in the war. But there was that thing that my will to live was more important than the will to live of someone else. And I think to myself, I know how important my will to live with. And it is, and so it's only intuitive or instinctive to understand that the will to live for these other people was just as important. So it took a while to get over the fact, you know, that guilt and that shame of, of that will to live and what we took from other people. And the only thing that I think about, if these people whose lives we took for the soldiers who didn't come home, I think to myself, what would they want us to do 
if we were able to hang on to our will to live and to our lives, would they want us to come home and be alcoholics? Would they want us to come home and suffer? Or would they want us to come home and do something that was positive in life to make life better than to come home and be a burden on life? So these were the lessons that were coming to me. But the other one that came back was that I had always thought to myself that this was about me. I went to war. I suffered. I was in combat. I am angry. I am depressed. I am guilty. I never thought about my family. So and, uh, my mother had told me that my, one of my brothers had written letters to me while I was in Vietnam, but never mailed them. They were under, she found them under the bed. And he was so afraid that I was going to die. It made her cry. It made me cry when she told me about it. And not one letter, but a whole bunch of them. I had never, ever paid attention to my family. And so now my mission is to think of the mission, the health is, it's not about me. It's not the health of the veteran, but the primary focus should be on the veteran and his family. So that was a mistake that I don't ever want to see other people go through if they don't need to. We have to think of the, the veteran military family as the primary health care unit. It's a marvelous statement, Mike. As a fellow veteran, but even more than that, as a fellow human being, let me just tell you, I'm, <laughs> I'm very happy uh, that you are where you are today. Well, Bob, you know, what's interesting for me is not many people would know this, but you're, you're in part of this. You, you belong to a lot of these. You're doing a lot of the same type of work. And I think what's important with Joe Campbell, with a lot of the people that you've interviewed, is we have found that it's not about us. And that one of the greatest therapies is really to turn the power around, to become our own best professors. To, to Nobody's going to teach us this stuff unless we want to go out and become our own teacher and our own professor. But we take the responsibility now of doing good things for the human spirit. What's the condition of the human spirit? And are we adding something beneficial to it or something destructive to it? And I think by the healing for me is going to be a lifetime of wanting to do something to improve the condition of the human spirit because I've been part of the bad side of it. We've been visiting with Mike Orban, Army and Vietnam veteran, activist, founder, and participant of many and varied outreach efforts to veterans and their families, and just a joy to talk to today. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bob. Thanks also to our recording engineer, Kate Ostrakon, and to our listeners for joining us today on the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.